Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. When uh, Gary Shandling, the comedian, died suddenly this past March 24th of a heart attack, I noticed that the uh, tributes that poured in from his friends and colleagues in the entertainment industry almost all mentioned three qualities, that he was brilliant, that he was funny, and that he was kind. And it struck me you don't often see those three traits emphasized in equal measure uh, something unusual and certainly something I think that made its way into his work and maybe the reason that I loved his work so much. And I'm speaking uh, particularly of the two TV sitcoms he created. It's Gary Shandling's show and Larry Sanders' show. Yes, they were original and very intelligent, and you could spend a lot of time, if you wanted to, thinking about them and uh, pondering the questions they raised. Or you could just laugh because they were hilarious and... Um, Laughter is itself a very advanced form of understanding. And then you could appreciate the fact that the particular laughter that Gary Shandling delivered in those comedies wasn't the sort that dispels problems, that dissolves the world's complications in a few chuckles. It wasn't an escape. It was more of a recognition of just how messed up and absurd the human condition can be, uh, largely as a result of our own illusions and neediness. And uh, while that may sound more tragic than funny, it is funny, the best kind of funny. And it's also where that element of kindness and compassion comes in, because though Gary Shandling was often making fun of characters, uh, it was always with the realization that they represented a side of him and a side of all of us. There was something uh, about Gary Shandling himself when you saw him in interviews that always seemed ill at ease and, and maladjusted, but unwilling to use humor to cover that up or compensate for it. Well, anyway, I was a true fan, and uh, when I got the news that Gary had died, I felt awful, and I also felt like talking to someone else who really, really knew and appreciated his work. The person I contacted to do so, the one you're going to hear in this conversation today, is Paul Provenza. He is a comedian himself, an actor, a producer and director of uh, comedic works, and I first met him back, I think, in 2010, when he'd come out with a book called Satiristas, a collection of uh, really interesting interviews with fellow comedians. I had him on the show to talk about that. And then uh, we talked a second time on the show about a TV series that he had created on uh, Showtime called The Green Room, where he gathered comedians to talk about their craft and their lives in candid ways. I was lucky enough to attend the taping of one of those sessions that included Gary Shandling, I knew Paul was a big admirer of his work and very interested in Gary Shandling, the man. And uh, Paul was generous enough to spend some time with me talking about both those subjects. So uh, we're going to dive into the interview here. And as we do, uh, just a word of warning that you're going to hear some odd scratching sounds coming from Paul's side. Uh, we were talking via Skype, and I think there was a bit of a microphone issue, but it goes away after the first couple minutes. As we began talking, uh, Paul was explaining to me how he got the news of Gary Shandling's death when he, Paul, was uh, working with Kelly Carlin, directing her one-woman show, A Carlin Home Companion. It's about her life growing up as the daughter of George Carlin. She was quite close to Gary Shandling, and both she and Paul were devastated when they heard what had happened. And um, and the first you know thing that we really felt was, damn it, you know, another one of the good guys, another another one who was all about love and kindness and generosity and growth and trying to reach a sort of higher plane of being. And Gary was doing that personally, but also was trying very, very hard to manifest all that in his work. It's interesting you mentioned George Carlin because he was maybe the first person to give Gary Shandling a boost of confidence uh, that he could become a comedian. Um, Gary Shandling often told a story about being a young guy thinking about writing comedy and uh, taking some stuff he'd written, some material, to George Carlin when George Carlin was doing a gig in Phoenix and Gary was living in Tucson, Arizona, I think. And this young guy approaching this famous comedian saying, hey, would you take a look at my stuff? And, and Carlin did and said, yeah, kid, you know, you could do this. Yeah. He always had a very special place in his heart for Gary, by all accounts. Um, you know, he just thought Gary's work was superb and uh, higher level, which, of course, is true, which is why it's such a great loss, particularly for comedians and people in television. 
because Gary really, really did do some extraordinary stuff. I mean, he, he, you know, start with it's Gary Shandling's show, which a lot of people don't remember and didn't really get the attention it deserved at the time. He sort of went back to old forms and reinvented them as well as adding his own spin to them. But the the real essence of that show was this questioning of uh, illusion and reality. Who are we? Who do we think we are? You know, who do people think we are? And that's been sort of a theme through a lot of his work. And when you get to it's Larry Sanders show, you know, he stays in that that place of wondering who we actually are. Are we our images? Are we who we think we are? What's the narrative people have about us? What's our own narrative? And all that is just is just rife in uh, Larry Sanders show. So Gary was trying to do, you know, sort of sitcom form or TV comedy form that was recognizable, but he really elevated it to be substantive in a, in a very sort of introspective way. Uh, it's, it's really quite remarkable stuff. I think as time goes on, um, certainly the Larry Sanders show, if not, it's Gary Shandling's show, uh, will both be regarded as, as real, real, um, meaningful and important pieces in television history, I think. Uh, yeah. And I want to talk more about both of those, uh, as the interview goes on. Um, what have you been thinking most about in the last week, though, since you heard about Gary's death? You know, mostly just I'm just really sad because he was one of the good guys. He was a guy who had incredible integrity. Everything he did was about raising the level of the art form, whether it be comedy or television, and raising his own level of uh, of understanding. And, and he was on a real inward journey. Uh, particularly in the latter part of his life. I mean, he wasn't very much in the public eye, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was on a real personal journey. You know, I wasn't one of the guys who played basketball with him, and, you know, I, I didn't really socialize with him much, but when we were together, it tended to be about comedy and the spiritual. Let me let me also just add that it's really important as I talk about these things. These are the things that I feel and, th and that goes through my mind when I think about losing Gary. Um, uh, but... First and foremost, the guy was hilarious. I mean, he is one of the best comedians ever to set foot on a stage. I mean, he really was extraordinary. And even his one-liners and, and, and the sort of the stuff that doesn't feel like it's particularly substantive, it's just funny material, in the aggregate, you really get a sense of a guy who is dealing with his insecurities and his confusions about life and who he is so clearly. And there's even in those one-liners, those goofy jokes, if you will, um, it really all adds up to a guy with great humility and a real aspiration to understand love. I was a big fan of both of the sitcoms you mentioned earlier, so I knew those well. And I'd seen his stand-up. But I have to say, um, I didn't feel like, for me, his stand-up was revolutionary or all that striking in an era when there were so many stand-ups. And he, he didn't strike me as one of those guys who was changing the form, doing anything really drastically new um, or subversive. I, I think you're absolutely right, and that's why I, I specify that in the aggregate, if you look at his work in the aggregate, you really see a human being. You know, what's interesting about Gary is he knew what he wasn't about, and that's really the most important thing. He knew that he wasn't about a kind of comedy that was not personal. He knew that he wasn't about a kind of comedy that was angry or hostile. He knew that he wasn't about a kind of comedy that was aggressive. Uh, and and that says a lot. And and yes, you're right. I think that as a stand-up, he wasn't inventive in the sense of uh, you know like uh, so many other people who kind of really changed the form uh, at the time. But he was his internal barometer and his personal integrity were so paramount that again, in the aggregate, over the over the course of a career, you see a very very high caliber of conventional stand-up. When you came out with your book, Satiristas, which was sort of in-depth, real probing interviews with comedians about the art of comedy, did you approach him? He didn't wind up in the book. I was wondering if you went after him and he said no. 
I probably did go after him, but he didn't say no. He's very private, very, very private. So he just didn't do a lot of things. And, um, you know, I certainly didn't take it personal. I just knew that he didn't do a lot of things. In fact, oh, you know what? Uh, I, I also asked him about the aristocrats, too. Uh-huh. And at the time, I recall him saying that, you know what? I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything on camera. Uh, and he just took big blocks of time away to be Gary, to figure out who Gary is, Gary was, because all his work always came from his introspection. And it was a period of time which went on for quite a long time, I think most of his latter life, uh, where he was more concerned with figuring out what his voice might be or what he wanted to say or what he wanted to do next. And he wasn't concerned with any of the showbiz part of it. He wasn't concerned with, oh, I'm going to do this project because it's a good thing to do or this will keep me visible or any of that. He he didn't care about any of that. So um, that's probably the reason why he wasn't in Satiristas and it's certainly the reason he wasn't in Aristocrats. You had asked him to be in The Aristocrats. Wow. And I just want to remind listeners who haven't seen it, this is the movie that you co-created with Penn Jillette. Yes. And it's this amazing movie of comedians telling an incredibly dirty joke and all in their own way. And, yeah, it ain't for everybody. It ain't <laughs> everybody. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a great movie about comedy, among other things, because the way in which people riff on this basic premise, which is as crude as it can get, and seemingly very limited, you know what I mean? The aristocrat's joke really is, you know, it's as one-dimensional as it could possibly be. But, you know, given this grunge to deal with, people do amazing things. And I think it's, it's a wonderful yeah, movie but- for that reason. Uh, thank you. Uh, Penn Jillette put it perfectly. He said it's 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 all about the idea that it's the singer, not the song. Yes, yes, that's it. And exactly. So that's that's what it really was was an exploration of this this simple idea that is you know pretty cut and dry. But what does this particular artist do with it? And the, the genesis of that film was uh, was really jazz. You know, Penn was was very deep into uh, learning jazz bass at the time. And we were talking about how interesting it is that, you know, a jazz cat will cover a standard. A, a musician, a jazz musician will cover a standard almost, it's almost de rigueur to do your version of, you know, some jazz standard. And um, and it's very easy to see how musicians' individuality expresses itself because they can do the same songs in completely different ways. And we were talking about how interesting it is that you really can't, do that with comedy and that's where this came from we thought well this is a joke that actually does do that this is a joke where the setup and the punchline are the same the middle period of it is just anybody's game all bets are off it's a clean slate for anybody to do anything and we thought you could really see each comedian's individual take and approach and uh um style uh by having them all do the same idea in their own way uh, so a lot, I think, emerges in that. And I would have loved to have Gary in it. You know, he's he's one of, of course, we could go uh, ad infinitum on uh, just exactly who we wish was in the movie that wasn't. I would have predicted he would turn that down. And I'm not coming from any position of expertise, just a, a uh, I guess, an observant fan of his. He seemed really uncomfortable with all the conventional formats of joke telling and performance. The whole thing made him kind of cringe, you know. Yeah, and 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 that's why you know it seems to me why he he created these two shows that are really about performance, about performing ourselves, about performing our lives. Yeah, really. I, I mean, you know, the Larry Sanders show is actually really quite a literate piece of work. I mean, you could analyze that show, uh, you know, like great literature, and and it really plays on that that kind of fundamental question of illusion reality uh the television form of course is the, is is perfect to put on top of all that because who knows what's real when you're watching television uh but that just became a metaphor for his exploration of himself as a human being and and by extension all of us who really are we and uh, you know what's illusion what's reality what's a construct what's a construct that's thrust upon us it's very heady stuff really which makes it really a spectacular show because it's just hilarious it's hilarious but it's sitting on some very heavy existential themes there may be audience members out there who don't know these two sitcoms we're talking about um it's gary shandling show and the larry sanders show and the word show is there for Obvious reasons in both of them, because both shows are about sh- life as a show. But um, It's Gary Shandling's show, you mentioned earlier, was 
it was a pretty radical thing. And um, it was the kind of thing that, um, as you just said about Larry Sanders show, if he had put it on in a pretentious way, he might have invited a lot of analysis and said, look at how I'm deconstructing the whole idea of performance and about self as performance. But instead, I think it was even more radical because he couched it in such a humdrum, unthreatening, traditional sitcom kind of format. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about, about his stand-up didn't appear to be groundbreaking or, or you know, doing anything particularly adventurous with the form. Uh, um, this sort of speaks to that same idea that in the aggregate it becomes something more, in that it's Gary Shanley's show is actually a very, very old premise. I, I mean, it's the Jack Benny show. It goes back to the early days of television uh, where, you know, there was a lot of winking and nodding to the, to the, the audience. Um, and so he actually went back to a very, very conventional approach, but he did succeed in making it something even greater than it was when Jack Benny was doing it and uh, some other people were doing it. Um, and that's kind of the same thing with his stand-up, that even though he worked in a very conventional form, his own integrity made it about so much more. And you're right. Uh, you know, most people in the audience don't deconstruct things that way. They just go, that was really funny. That was really smart. But it does affect them in a way that separates it from most other things. You know, the, the, an audience can tell that there's something else going on there. They may not even be, they may not consciously be aware of it, but it has a lot to do with why people respond to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's so much greater that uh, to me that Gary Shandling managed to communicate what seemed like very sophisticated things about art and reality in an unpretentious little sitcom uh, than in some sort of um, philosophical uh, thesis or, you know, long dissertation. That's why he is really sort of, a, you know, an almost a textbook illustration of the highest level of practice in the art of comedy. And, and, you know, I mean, the idea that in that show we're talking about that he broke the fourth wall and that's a big deal. Well, artists have been doing that probably forever. That goes way back. But Shakespeare did, did it. Exactly. Shakespeare did it. He had his characters give asides directly to the audience, et cetera. The Greeks did the it. The Greeks that's did it. Absolutely. That is, it's, it's a, that's, what, that's another illustration of what I mean about how there's something very literate about his approach to comedy. Uh, unpretentiously so. But but I wanted to point out that he didn't just break the fourth wall. In fact, he, he was showing in a way that we are never outside of that fourth wall, that we're all on the stage together. So, uh, well, you're a perfect audience because you get it all. <laughs> <laughs> as far as all of that goes, it's Gary Shandling's show and Larry Sanders' show are really from the same DNA. Yes. In it's Gary Shandling's show, he was literally working with that sort of presentational fourth wall, you know, the fourth wall of the sitcom apartment that, you, you know, we don't see, whereas in Larry Sanders, he escalates it to the medium, you know, the fact that all the stuff that was not for broadcast on the show within the show, the Larry Sanders show, was done in film, but what was on television was done on videotape. So again, he had this sort of clear metaphor for this is meant to be an illusion, this is meant to be reality, but of course it all gets all muddy because that's the gist of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and just to get back to that point I was making about the fourth wall being unbreakable and all of us being inside of it in some twisted up way, uh, I haven't seen that show in many, many years. You can't find it on YouTube. I guess you got to buy the box set from Showtime or something. But uh, I do remember an episode in which the characters who, who, who live in this little traditional sitcom in a condominium and they have their domestic you know, complications and, and antics together. And some of these characters win tickets to go to Hollywood. Uh, to watch the live taping of a TV show. So they wander off the set of the sitcom onto another set where mm -hmm. they choose to watch the show that they are already in. Uh, right. They choose to watch It's Gary Shandling's show from, from their <laughs> supposed uh, studio in Hollywood. Yeah. And right we get to watch them. <laughs> right, there, right there is the seed of Larry Sanders. <laughs> yes, it is. And again, lest, lest anybody that's listening to this forget this fact, we're talking very, very, you know, uh, um, we're talking really pretentiously about both of these shows, but they are hilariously funny. Well, I want to say even more than hilarious in the case of Larry Sanders, I think the the big leap between the two of them, it's Gary Shandling's show conceptually seems more schematic and radical and and philosophical 
Larry Sanders takes characters really seriously. So it's deeply human and it's actually very poignant. Very. I actually uh, signed up for HBO simply to watch that show. Um, uh-huh. That's how I much I wanted I, to see it. I, I think there's a statistic about that. <laughs> really? That's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm watch, rewatching it again for the first time on DVD and I'm just made my way through like the, the third episode and um, it's already getting to the point where you're not just laughing at characters like Hank, the sidekick on the Larry Sanders show, talk show, uh, who's a vain and silly figure, but you're also beginning to see how complicated it all is and how the relationship between him and Larry has this um, dimension of a, sort of a lost friendship. It's kind of amazing that he's squeezing all that in. It's remarkable. It, it's it's absolutely remarkable. And the truth is that, the, you know, for me, the best moments on Larry Sanders are those moments where you're laughing at the comedy, but also your heart is breaking for some of these people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hopefully you're recognizing some of your own frailties in them. Yeah. And that, you know, that uh, again, uh, I don't know if he's publicly stated it, but certainly that aspect of Larry Sanders is what made the original British version of The Office so compelling. Uh, that it, you know, it's sort of cringy. I mean, Larry Sanders' show in many ways is is cringy uh, and funny at the same time, but also it's it, it's cringy because your heart is just breaking for these characters that that you've seen so many aspects of, you've seen so many facets of. Uh, so I, I think there's a direct relationship between Larry Sanders and the original Office. Oh well, I think Ricky Gervais has totally acknowledged that. Oh, uh, well, it would make sense, yeah. Have you seen this really weird little, um, I don't want to call it a documentary, but, you know, it's this, this thing made for TV by Ricky Gervais, a visit to Larry Sand, uh, excuse me, a visit to Gary Shandling's home. Have you seen I that on YouTube? I have not. I'm going to seek it out as soon as uh, we go. It is really weird. And I think one of um, Gary's amazing gifts uh, was that he didn't seek comfort zones. He He sought discomfort zones in all situations, it seems to me. And, you know, sometimes when he's being interviewed and could just fire off a witticism or just get through it really slickly, he does the opposite. He kind of tortures himself to find the right answer or he goes through long pauses or he uh, points out something that that underlies the question that makes the whole interview um, itself calls it all into question. Well, Mm -hmm. this this weird thing with Ricky Gervais, uh, I wish you'd seen it because we could talk about it is the only time I've ever seen Gary Shandling, and everyone talks about him as a very considerate, sweet-natured guy, but it's the only time I've ever seen him seem really, like, mean. It's incredibly awkward. Ricky Gervais is there in his house and tries to have an interview with him, and Gary is just, like, cutting him, you know? Uh, <laughs> and it, and you can see Gervais, who's a guy who's armored with quick wit and, you know, n- almost never probably is in a position of real vulnerability because he's so on top of the conversation normally, mm-hmm. you can see him just shrivel. And was it, was it real or was it staged? Well, here's the story, the, the background that I've heard, and, and this may not be true. It may have been a stunt. It's, it, it's a bizarre and interesting, fascinating thing to watch. But that what happened was Ricky Gervais did not adequately consult Gary Shandling about going to his house and setting up cameras and surprised him. And Gary was really offended, and that's why he decided to not go along with the interview and uh, really sort of strike back. Well, I'm anxious to see it now because yeah. I wonder I wonder if it's staged or, or yeah. if it, it's authentic and, and, and where it blurs. Um, uh, do you, are you familiar with the Showtime special that he did called the Gary Shanley Show 25th Anniversary <laughs> Special? <laughs> yes. That is absolute genius. And again, it plays with those same ideas. You know, that's another thing about Gary is that while it may have been unstated, as you look back over his work in television anyway, you really see a sense of a manifesto. There's ideas that he just keeps going back to and finding different ways to explore. Those three or four major projects of his in television, you can you could approach them like an art historian and really see, you know, you can see where Picasso's cubism came from if you go back to his early stuff. Stuff, you know, uh, it's that kind of an exercise that you can have with Gary's work, which uh, is why he's so, so highly regarded and so appreciated and was such a big influence on a lot of people. And, and, and the manifesto that uh, was 
stated was this idea of integrity, you know, just what is it that you're about? And for him, it was all about that question of who am I? Who are we? What's real? What's an artifice? Uh, uh, very substantive stuff that really, uh, unless you go back with, with, with the intent of finding it, you won't because you're just laughing too hard. But the Gary Shandling Show 25th anniversary special, uh, for your listeners who don't know it, it was as if Gary Shandling, it was kind of a satire of uh, the Johnny Carson anniversary shows, and he would do clips from back, you know, in the 60s of this show that didn't even exist, but they were completely real and completely realistic, and, and again, form and content were so much, he was playing with both of those things, he was playing with the form of these anniversary shows, he was playing with the idea of a character's genesis through 25 years in this context of show business, fascinating. It's a hilarious show. So you're saying uh, you think the um, the foul mouth Mr. Ed was was believable and totally realistic? Um, <laughs> Are you forgetting that he interviews Mr. Ed? He has the horse who's just swearing, you know, <laughs> right. throughout the whole thing. They have to bleep the whole thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that. Uh, uh... That plays right into the illusion of reality. You know, who are people's images that we see on TV anything like who they really are? You know, that's a, that's a really simple uh, way of, of exploring that. But, you know, it, the detail also, that's another thing, is the amount of thought and detail in all his TV work is remarkable. Uh, you know, on that show, you would see him doing those things that just said Johnny from 25 years ago, you know, where the camera would be coming back to the segment in black and white and he'd be putting his cigarette out under the desk, you know, and that actually more so than just the fact that it's, it's such an iconic thing for people who are aware of it to see uh, him refer to about Johnny and the anniversary shows. It also speaks to, okay, what's the real Johnny Carson? Johnny Carson didn't smoke on camera at the time. You know, he would put it out under, he would smoke at commercial breaks and all that. So, so are we really seeing the real Johnny that we love so much? And all those kinds of ideas are just, just all through everything in that show. Yeah, well, Johnny Carson kept it really close to the vest. I mean, his TV persona was a guy who was, and I'm not saying this to be critical, but it was pure surface. It was the, the smooth guy who was simply going to move the conversation along, tell the jokes at the right time, make the, the comic winks that were necessary, but never let you know what's going on deep inside that man. And then he disappeared the minute he retired. The minute he retired, it was like he never existed. He went away, you know, uh, uh, Letterman, same thing, by the way. And I think that there's no coincidence there. And I also think it's no coincidence that Gary Shandling was the perfect Tonight Show host. I don't know if you remember the first time he guest hosted the Tonight Show, but it was like he had been doing it for 20 years. It was unbelievable. I mean, he was superb at it. It, it, I, I'm, it must be online somewhere. But if you can see his first guest hosting appearance on the Tonight Show, it's breathtaking. Well, that's that's the amazing thing that, in fact, people say that he might have been offered Johnny's spot, that he was, in fact, offered David Letterman's spot when David Letterman moved from NBC to CBS, that he could have ended up being a late night talk show host for years on end is shocking to me because given how introspective and self-questioning and uncertain he was about the whole enterprise of entertainment and commercialism and all of that, that he could have ever been trapped, I think it would have been a trap, in, in, in that, that rigid a format is kind of shocking to think about. Yeah, and it would have been really hard, I think, for him to go from the deconstruction of the artifice on Larry Sanders to actually engaging in the artifice. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know, no. I mean, there's, there's actually really, there's some similar DNA with between Gary and Larry Sanders and Gary's potential as a talk show host and all of that. I think it shares DNA with Stephen Colbert. Yeah, yeah. It, and it is fascinating to watch a guy as complicated uh, and as smart as Colbert doing his best to liven up a very stale and ancient formula, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, the, the basic setup of the late night talk show has been the same now since Jack Parr, Steve Allen. Yeah, well, that's, that's television's, uh, you know, philosophy of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
Uh, but, you know, they, it has changed quite a bit with Jimmy Fallon. And for better or worse, I'm not going to make any aesthetic valuations on that. But it has changed radically. You know, it's gone from from that format that enabled talk show hosts of yore to have, uh, you know, Tiny Tim and Judy Garland on a show with Gore Vidal, you yeah. know, to what Jimmy Fallon is doing now, which is essentially just a big party. Yeah. But I would say the one thing that hasn't changed uh, in a long time is that the the whole purpose of those shows is to make you feel comfortable before you go to bed. They're not meant to shock you or rock you out of your sense of reality or certainty about anything. Yes. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> to clarify, though, that this is an important distinction, though. Back in the days when, you know, Johnny and Dick Cavett had these, you know, these these really complex styles of guests and and you know authors and pub and journalists yeah. on with showbiz personalities and, and 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 goofballs and all that sort of stuff that was thought to be entertaining <laughs> you know that was the idea that well that is entertaining you switch gears you don't know what to expect you don't know where it's gonna go and uh, i do miss that but that's just me and just a reminder here that you are listening to the seventh avenue project on kusp i'm robert polly and today we are remembering the comedian Gary Shandling, we being me, and uh, Gary's fellow comedian and friend, Paul Provenza. We'll get back to the conversation right after this. And now back to today's installment of the 7th Avenue Project, a conversation with the comedian Paul Provenza about his fellow comedian, the late Gary Shandling. Well, enough about other people's shows. I want to talk about your show, Paul. And the reason, okay. <laughs> and the reason why I thought of you... You know, when I thought of people I might talk to about Gary Shandling, because I, I, I didn't know him, uh, but I admired the work so much. and I felt so close to it that, um, yeah, like a lot of people, I've just been feeling really sad. Uh, I just I just really wanted the guy around, even if he wasn't performing, even if I would never see another product, another you work by him. I would ask him about, you know, what what direction he thinks he's headed towards. And I knew that he had taken some time away from being in the public eye and was going through his own journey and all that sort of stuff. And I, and I would ask him, I said, like, you know, are you, are you headed towards something? Is there something you want to do, whatever? And um, he would always say that he had no idea and that it would – I'm paraphrasing, but that, you know, it would tell him. And that's one of the big <clears throat> things that I felt when he died was – Wow, we're not going to see what that is. We're not going to see what he was headed towards. We're not going to see where his journey was going to take him, and that's a real loss. Yeah, so when I mention um, your show, what I'm referring to is The Green Room. I would call it almost a TV experiment that you ran for a couple of years, around 2010-2011, resulting in two short seasons on Showtime. You want to explain the premise? The manifesto of the show was manifold, but but... Uh, the big objective was, you know, when I discovered comedy and I became, I started very young. I started uh, hanging out at the Improv in New York when I was like 15 and I started actually performing stand-up at 17. And for me, when I discovered comedy, it wasn't an escape. It was a, it was a coping mechanism. And some of my most profound experiences were just hanging out with other comedians who see the world in the most unpredictable and skewed ways. And I always felt like, boy, if there's any way that I could translate to an audience how this feels to me. And, and so that was sort of the impulse behind The Green Room. And I just thought, let me try. And it started as a live show that I was experimenting with at the, um, at the Edinburgh Fringe. And uh, I would just have comedians on and, I, and it was right at the beginning, I would tell the audience, don't think of this as a typical presentational comedy show. We're really just going to hang out and pretend like you're not even here. <laughs> and so that was the idea behind the green room. So each episode basically consisted of usually I think it was five, five comedians. Uh, no, it's usually four plus me. There were times when we had five, there were times when we had six, and there was one time we had three, I think, plus me. Okay, so it was that, roughly that number of guys and gals sitting around in a comfortable environment, surrounded by a very small audience of hand-picked people, friends of yours, people you knew. And I think this spoke to Gary, was that we strove very hard for as much authenticity as is possible on television. So, you know, the idea that we were in a green room is the conceit of the show. Uh, but in order to make it authentic, we literally had an audience filled with, I would say, about 
80 to 90% of the audience were people who frequented green rooms, whether they be other comedians or friends of comedians and families of comedians or comedy fans who knew comedians. Uh, it, it was all personal invites from people that we knew would understand what a green room is and would, would have the same vibe where it's not about you have to be funny all the time. It's about listening to the conversation. So um, how did you pick this particular lineup for this particular night that included Gary Shandling, who was at that point, I think, a very rare catch, and you brought him together with Judd Apatow, uh, Ray Romano, Mark Marin, Bo Burnham, um, who seemed to be sort of the odd man out of that he was a young up-and-coming comedian. The other guys were all famous and, and veterans. And you, how did you pick right. that lineup? Well, you know, the, the groupings on the show were really sort of my palette. Uh, you know, people would say, but I can't believe, you know, how you just let people do the thing. It's, you know, people would talk about how it seemed like I was just there, which made me feel very good because I, I wanted to be as generous as possible. But really... My palette, where I really got to express myself, was in putting the groups together. In fact, we scrapped entire shows when one person had to drop out because it wasn't the kind of show. It was like, well, we have a slot. This person's available. It was the, the combinations of people were what was creative for me because I knew that certain groups of people would be really compelling and interesting. And um, so I worked very hard at that. And with the Gary Shandling show. Judd Apatow was the simplest. And Judd and I go way back. And I, I knew, of course, that he and Gary were very close. So I thought, well, that'll be very interesting because I do have a history with Judd. And I know that he'll make Gary comfortable. Um, Mark Marin, of course, is Mark Marin. He, he's just hilarious. And, and I knew that if Gary wanted to get substantive, that Mark could go there. Mark is also somebody who very publicly is on a journey. Uh, so that was a nice combination. Ray Romano... Uh, was to me, you know, that same kind of Gary Shandling level of success, a Judd Apatow level of success. But I also knew that Ray was somebody else who, who was a lovely human being and thought a lot about what he did and was one of those comedians who knew what he was not about. And I didn't know if Ray and Gary had a history, but I knew that there were enough connections there with the right kinds of people that if we were going to go down the roads that I wanted to go down with, with somebody like Gary in the group, that Ray would be able to step up to the plate. But in the weeks prior to shooting, I was feeling like something was missing and I didn't know what it was. And I had happened to have a call into Bo, uh, who I actually met when he was 15 on the phone on a whole other story. But anyway, um, I had a call into Bo and I hadn't heard from him and I just sort of forgot about it. Uh, and while I was staring at the board going, something is missing from this show. I want something else to go on here. I don't know what it is. Somebody came in and said, Bo Burnham's on the line. And I said, it's Bo. It is Bo. Because Bo is absolutely brilliant. Bo is, is one of the smartest comedians I've ever met in my life. So young, such a prodigy, really. Uh, and uh, so thoughtful about what he does. Another person who is just like, I know what I'm not about, as he goes on his exploration for what he is about. So committed, so much about the art of comedy. And the fact that nobody knew who he was, I thought, that's the guy. Now, it just so happens that Bo, that Bo and Judd knew each other pretty well. In fact, I think they got, had gotten involved in some movie deal that I don't know if it's happening or was meant to happen and didn't. But so I thought, okay, there's a connection. I also knew that Mark Marin had been an asshole to Bo at one point because, because <laughs> right, he's Mark Marin. And I say it with great affection. Uh, uh, and I, so I just thought well, that's it. And it just so happens that I had a conversation with Gary where we were talking about young comedians and he didn't remember Bo by name, but he said, I saw this special with this kid that I thought was fantastic. So I put him on the show without telling Gary that this is the guy that you thought, uh, that, you, that you said that about. Uh, and that's how that came about. And I think Bo's presence on the show was really the thing that brought everybody alive in a very, very different and compelling way. Well, you clever man. Um, putting that particular chemistry together in your uh, test tube was was quite inspired, I think. I was lucky enough to be there. By that time, I was uh, really interested in Gary. He had a sort of aura about him, a guy who walked away at the height of his career, you know, while on top, 
and had gone into not maybe not total seclusion, but you know he was kind of a mystery man to a lot of people. Like, what is Gary Shandling doing? Oh my God, he's going to talk to other comedians. What's it going to be like? And the truth is, I mean, it really felt throughout that entire um, taping, which was maybe twice as long as the the cut down version that you aired on Showtime. It's it's true. All eyes were on Gary. What's he going to do? What's he going to do next? I mean, I felt like even these really famous dudes like Judd Apatow and Ray Romano and Mark Maron were kind of watching him the whole time. Mm-hmm. Sure. You well, too, you of know, course. It was, it was like the episode with uh, Jonathan Winters. How could you not? I mean, you know, how could you not? He's an icon. He's one of the greats, you know? And got, got a reputation as more than a funny guy, as kind of a guru, as kind of a guy uh, with some secret wisdom that maybe he might. Yeah, and, and you know, it was interesting because he, he also, you know, as as much as he was on this introspective journey and um, this sort of uh, zen uh, approach to trying to figure out who he was as much and as deep as that was for him he really very very rarely spoke about it publicly in fact on the show i ask i push him in that direction and he's like well look this isn't really the place for this conversation well, <laughs> you know? well i want to play i want to play a clip because honestly amidst all the witty banter and the safe kind of talk about people's careers you kept on him paul you were like a dog with a bone. You kept bringing up his journey and his Buddhism, and uh, you were making him uncomfortable, but it resulted in some, some great stuff. I want to play Well, I, you know what? I did what you said he liked to do to himself, which is take himself out of his comfort zone. That's what I did, really. I just I knew that he was somebody who, when he did go out, out of his comfort zone, you know, he always shone. Yep. So let's listen to a clip. This is you kind of out of the blue. Uh, just bringing the subject up because you just couldn't hold back on this. I know that you've been uh, on on a, an internal journey, a spiritual journey. Would you call it a spiritual? Spiritual? Yeah, it's 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 pronounced spiritual. It's, Thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I've been meditating far too far too long to be uh, uh, happy about anything. The um, well, I'm at peace, and um, but. Um, I don't really don't know what I want to say about this. Well, Gary brought a, one of his- there you go, bringing up some personal matters that he wasn't necessarily on board with talking about. And his first response was to kind of dismiss you. Uh, and it didn't go very far at all. And, <laughs> you know, so the conversation goes back to more familiar territory. Some of its comedians, you know, just kind of one-upping each other with smart, uh, smart-alecky responses. And Gary gets into that, which is part of what comedy is. It's competition. You know, it can be... It can be a little bit aggressive, right? Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I want to reframe that a little bit, particularly with a group like that, uh, and pretty much everybody that I, I had on the show is. It's not really so much competition as it is when you're playing tennis with uh, somebody of a higher caliber. That's not really competition. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. Everybody's raising their game a little bit, both comedically and substantively. You know. Uh, Yep, it's a slam dunk contest. You know, it's it's the good natured basketball game, and where everybody else can turn around and go, "That was good." <laughs> you know, they don't feel like they were belittled. They feel like, "Oh, that was good. You're excellent." You know, R- right? Absolutely. But you wouldn't let it go. I mean, uh, you know, G- Gary tried to escape. <laughs> he tried to escape that time, and you brought it up again, and you brought it up again. Yeah. I just really, you know, I think Gary is an amazing person. And, and like I said, I really had conversations with people on the show. I mean, there's a lot of shows that got the, the very odd moments. Some people consider tense. Some people consider, consider you know, uh, uh, unnerving. Uh, some people consider conflict. But it never was any of that. What it really was was just real. So, again, you said, well, I really want to know what you've attained, you know, with this Buddhism you've been doing. I think this is your, your third try. But, but uh, all, all my journey is, is to be authentically who I am, not trying to be somebody else under all circumstances. Have you found confusion? And it takes a, sure. There isn't, the whole world is confused because they're trying to be somebody else. To be your true self, is, it takes enormous work. Then we could start to look at the problems in the world. But instead, ego drives it. Ego drives the world. Ego drives the problems. So you have to work in an egoless way. This egolessness, which um, is the key to being authentic, is a, a battle. And it's a battle that has to be won uh, before we're worried about the economy. 
And I, I think that for a comic, it's a dangerous battle. So, yeah. so you've managed to push him a little bit harder, and he's finally telling you something, you know, substantial about what he really wants is simply to be authentic. That's all he wants. He wants to be a true self, and that's hard to do. And that uh, he, he ends by saying, egolessness, you know, uh, that is the key to being authentic is a battle. Um, and it, it, it's a battle that has to be won even before we solve society's problems. Right. What, what's fascinating is Mark Marin comes back and says right away that that's a dangerous struggle for a comic. Yep. Yep. What do you think Mark Marin meant by that? Well, I know exactly what he meant by that, although it's very difficult to articulate. But, you know, comedy is to be egoless in an ego driven art form is difficult. I mean, as a comedian, you have to have confidence. You have to have a, a clear and discernible character, even if it's unarticulable. Uh, um, you have to put yourself in front of everything. Uh, and I'm talking about in the work. I'm not even talking about in life. In life alone, which is 95% of your day, you know, it's very difficult to be in a business that's about you and to be in an art form where you have to be in front of it all the time. And yet, how do you do that and remain egoless? It is, it's the great conundrum, I think, to, to being a great and evolved comedian. Does anybody get there and, and remain a comedian? I think so. I think I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know uh, everybody's personal journey, but uh, I, I think so. I, you know, Rick Overton is a great example. The man is just all, uh, you know, he's his work, I think, he lives in that Zen place and he's been doing it for forever. Um, uh, there are countless examples I, I just don't have at my fingertips and certainly a lot more that I, I don't know enough about to speak uh, about but um it is the challenge i had this uh, this conversation uh, is sort of a slightly different one with drew carey uh where drew was talking about how hard it is to be because I, I i asked him i go what's it like you know hosting a game show and does that you know is that was that kind of a step down was it about the money was it about you know how does it relate to you as a stand-up or whatever and he was very clear about it he said you know what i go to work every day and i give people tons of money and all i have around me is joy he goes, it's the greatest job in the world. And I said, well, you know, relative to comedy, we talked about that relative to comedy. And he said, it's very difficult to do comedy that comes from kindness. Uh, it, it's probably not impossible, but it's really difficult and it's really challenging. And the, this experience of really being in a joyful place where all he did was make other people happy, it, it profoundly, in, you know, uh, affected him. You just opened up, you know, a whole line of thought that we could pursue for a while if we wanted to, which is, you know, that combination of kindness and funniness that is so hard to achieve. I mean, part of the aim of comedy a lot of times is to take oneself or to take others down a peg. If, you know, if it's self-deprecating comedy, you're you're stripping away your own pretensions. Or if you're making fun of other people, especially the powerful, you're stripping away their pretensions. But that's that's kind of aggressive. Even if you're challenging yourself, yeah. even if yeah. it's like I'm the victim in my own joke here, you're still exactly. operating in that arena where if an audience is to relate to it, they have to be the victims as well. Exactly. If they on a human, you know, the human level that, oh, yeah, I'm also an asshole in life, you know, or I also, you know, screw up and I also have – you know, issues about that because none of us are perfect. So, you know, in the abstract, it then becomes this question, like, can comedy ever be kind? Well, like, what you're describing could be tough love. I mean, it, it's it's vicious, it's merciless, but the goal is to reconcile some things and, and ultimately to, to free you, I guess. You know, this may sound too high-minded, but I can see how tough that would be. And and that other struggle that uh, is is very similar that Gary Shandling seems to have really been involved with was, can you bring art together with real authenticity? Can you bring performance together with authenticity? Or is performance always going to be a bit of a sham? Yes, yes. These are the existential questions. Yeah. Well, he struggled with that in his art. And I think that's why he stepped away from TV, because he really felt that there were limits to how real you could ever be in that box. And meanwhile, here he was appearing on your show, where you were attempting to make real conversation happen while having cameras running and having an audience and ultimately taking this stuff to TV. Um, a very hard thing to pull off, maybe impossible. It is a juicy area to experiment in, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, so much of Gary's work seemed to say, you know, 
uh, we can work really hard and take a mask off, but underneath is another mask. And that, that right there, it's Larry Sanders and it's Gary Shanley's show. <laughs> Again, I've been watching um, the uh, DVDs uh, for the first time of the Larry Sanders show, and uh, he has some extras there that include some further experiments in this area, like his visit to his ex, Sharon Stone, for breakfast. Uh-huh. A little mini documentary where he brings a camera crew over to her house, and they have a seemingly intimate breakfast, but you can hear that there are people in the background. You can hear a few people laughing when jokes are made, you know, and you can see the cameras. And you can see both he and Sharon Stone sort of drift in and out of, like, really relating to each other or relating to the demands of the the set, you know, at first when watching it, I thought, oh, this isn't going to work. You know, they're both aware of the cameras. They're both kind of awkwardly struggling to act like they're having a real breakfast when, of course, they aren't. But then they get more and more into their their past together, their relationship. They were very close friends. They had dated. They had studied together under a, an acting teacher and, and gotten to know each other that way. And there's some moments there that seem mighty real. Yeah, I, I I think it's impossible to go down that road with somebody like Gary and not have it be somewhat authentic because I just don't think that he wanted to operate in uh, any other place. Uh, but again, that's also, you know, the green room. And one of the reasons why Gary came and did it was because uh, <clears throat> that was what we were striving for was some degree if not 100%, some degree of authenticity. And that had a lot to do with also, again, the way we shot it, which is where I put the audience around us so that there was never a barrier between what you're seeing with our guests and the audience, that they became one and the same. You see cameras in every shot, which you ultimately just forget about, which is what we wanted the comedians to do, is just forget about them. They're there, they're ubiquitous. So it's not even like, you know, I mean, eventually they could just fade into the experience, you know, uh, and all that was driven by uh, that striving for authenticity, which is why it was so meaningful to me to have Gary on the show and why I think, you know, he has influenced me not only as a comedian, but also as a, as a human being, just this notion that you can make hay with this striving for authenticity, regardless of whether or not you achieve it 100%. And uh, authenticity is, is sort of the thing that drives me. I mean, you haven't seen me on network in a long time. You don't see me doing very show busy stuff. And it's largely because, I mean, I left the country for almost 15 years because I wanted to get so far away from the business and get back to feeling authentic. Where'd you go? And, uh, well, I started out in the UK and then out of the UK, I ended up uh, on the international circuit and um, <clears throat> just sort of did a lot of a lot of work on the international circuit for, uh, like I said, b- between 12 and 15 years. You know, I developed the green room in that context. I developed set list in that context, uh, which is another show that is very much about authenticity. I don't know how familiar you are with it. I'm not. Well, Setlist is a show that was um, uh, created by the evil genius Troy Conrad, who also is very much in the in in that mindset of let's be real. Uh, and <clears throat> he created this concept. And uh, the f- when I started working with him on it, the first thing I did was book it into the Edinburgh Fringe because I knew that you know you do like twenty eight shows in a row, and it's like two years worth of development in one month. And over the course of that month what I was striving for with this concept was as much authenticity as possible. And the premise of the show is that Troy and a couple of other people, uh, sometimes myself, usually not, uh, will create a set list for a comedian and they get it on stage and have to improv the set that goes with it. So what you see is really authentic. I mean, you see people, uh, it's an interesting little bit of a, 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 mask in front of a mask thing because they're using the form of stand-up which is very much about confidence and very much about knowing exactly what you're doing uh to disguise the fact that they don't know what they're doing so you see the genuine creation of 
comedy and you see the inspiration and these flashes of 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 creativity all within this conceit of oh no no i this is my material this was this is my set list but they've never seen the set list before <laughs> and one of the things that we did over the the course of development was get to the point where the audience and the comedian both see the next item on on the set list for the first time simultaneously so it's the only time where an audience is starting off at exactly the same place that the comedian is and they can see what you know what the task is and how this comedian is clearly the one who should be on stage <laughs> man that sounds great uh, yeah it's an exciting show but so that's another thing that i developed uh, on the international circuit um uh there's a little bit of freedom in in the uk and in uh, uh on the international circuit where um things aren't necessarily about the commercial viability there is a place for the experimental and the uh potential uh greatness to work itself out uh in a way that's uh, not real easy here in the in LA show business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, we talked about this green room episode where um, you pursue Gary for answers throughout this <laughs> this conversation, <laughs> and you you come back again and again, and at the very end, you really you hit pay dirt, and <laughs> he, he stopped dodging. Um, he'd already, you know, confided some things, but he really sort of spoke from the heart at the very end. I'm assuming that I will get a little bit of an understanding of what your journey towards enlightenment has been like. I want to understand why This is not a safe environment to do it. What would be a safe environment? Well, you just I'm keep not, asking me about it. it. But I feel that you're very close to the vest about, about your experience, and I'm genuinely... We need something in our society that says there's some importance to heart and authenticity, not just money power, and how are we going to control the world? I love you, Gary Shandling! And, and that was you at the end saying, I love you, Gary Shandling. Right. Now, I, I know your, your listeners can't see this, but boy, that was a great hug. <laughs> that was a real hug. Genuine. That was great hug. <laughs> Did he talk to you about that afterwards, the experience? Oh, yeah, we, talked at, we talked at length afterwards, and we talked uh, you know, more in depth about a lot of the ideas and everything. As I said, that's where you know, my connection with Gary was you know, I, I wasn't one of the pals. I didn't go to his house and play basketball. I didn't, you know, it wasn't that. But when we did connect, it was about those things. And was he, was he glad he did it? Yes and no. I mean, you know, he's very shy and very private, and 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 that journey, by definition, has to be a private one. So it was uncomfortable for him to go to those places, but he ultimately respected that I did and appreciated that the the reasons that I did. They all became very clear, and um, and then understood that one of the reasons that I was so focused on that was because that's exactly a journey that that I'm experiencing in my own way, and it meant a lot to me to talk about it. So yeah. It was great, you know, um, uh, and he also came to see the uh, Kelly Carlin solo show that I directed, uh, Carlin Home Companion, and uh, got that that was also another example of the fact that I'm trying to do the kinds of things, uh, and Kelly certainly is, uh, but that myself as a director and the choices that I made as a director and the way I worked with Kelly was also very much about something that, that he could respect. Uh, one more uh, thought about this idea that beneath the mask lies another mask. Um, have you watched that uh, DVD of Larry Sanders uh, recently? You know, not recently. And I do remember the thing with Sharon Stone, but I don't remember enough about it to comment on on, on the things you talked about. But I'm going to check it out. Well, there's, <laughs> there's one other detail I just had to mention, and that is at least on the disc one, which I'm watching now, and the main menu, uh, along with the usual menu items like uh, episodes – and extras, there's one that says, I don't really want to watch this DVD. I'd rather spend my time talking to a human being. <laughs> and if you choose it, it says, option not available. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's great. <laughs> it really is. I mean, there, there's something so consistent and significant about all of his work, and it might be summed up in that little joke on the DVD. 
Yeah, boy, that, that, that is pretty definitive. Um, uh, you know, and that's the, thing, that's the thing about Gary that I think is really special is that, you know, uh, somebody like Robin Williams dies and, and, and there's a tremendous emotional impact because he connected with people in a certain way or people connected with him in a certain way. He's part of people's childhoods, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's all tremendously authentic and 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 rich and meaningful you know just ronnie corbett who just passed away you know he the people certainly people of the uk that knew him it was like losing an uncle you know that was at every family gathering a, a, a real affection and fondness and and they related to people in in a way that was a little bit more uh readily understandable with Gary, I believe that Gary's legacy is going to be one of great, great artistry. I, I, I don't know that people had the same sort of emotional connection or reaction to him, but there's no question that if the art of comedy ever gets uh, to the place where people speak of it like they do about other art forms and critique it like they do about other art forms, that Gary's work will be among the most elevated in comedy, certainly in television comedy, without a doubt. I think that he, he, what he did was not obvious to everybody, not necessarily emotionally connecting with everybody, but there's no question that he was operating on a level that was just completely important and meaningful. Uh, and I think his legacy will be more about the meaning of his work, the, the uh, impetus of his work, uh, the execution of his work than it will be about how people were necessarily connected to him in those same ways as Robin or, you know, some sort of icons that are just beloved. I can only say, uh, you know, in my case, again, I never came anywhere close to actually meeting him, uh, but I felt real affection for the guy uh, in a way that I don't, even for um, some performers who I admire and whose work I love. So something came through. I, I think so, but I, I think that it is rarefied. I think that his the audience that appreciates him in an emotional way is a sliver of the comedy audience, as opposed to somebody like a Robin Williams, where it's it's a huge swath. Uh, you know, I think um, I think you had to be operating on a slightly different level to be um, moved. By Gary, because there's a lot of intellect behind it. Well, there's more than two of us. I know that, Paul. Um, yes, for sure. Well, it has been really great talking to you. Uh, listen, I could talk about Gary for forever. <laughs> Comedian, actor, director, writer, and comedy curator Paul Provenza. And uh, you can learn more about some of the uh, projects of Paul's that we talked about during that interview online. For instance, you can see the entire Green Room series available via streaming at Amazon. And you can learn more about Setlist, the comedy improv experiment that Paul helped create and produce at setlistshow.com. And to find out more about this radio show, go to our website, 7thAvenueProject.com.